Welcome back. You're listening to Nate the Hate on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Be sure to like the video and subscribe and ring that notification bell. Today's episode is dedicated to Calvin Atkinson, who generously donated $100 to the show. Thank you for your support, Calvin. And you would, if you would like to support the show, we have a Streamlabs link in our description below on YouTube. You can donate any amount, ask us a question, and we will answer it at the end of the episode. Donate $100 or more, and we will dedicate the episode to you. Today's episode, again, is dedicated to Calvin Atkinson. And I'd like to welcome my co-host, as always, Modern Vintage Gamer. What's going on, Nate? Great to be here, and uh, congratulations on 10,000 subscribers. I saw that yes. milestone was reached a couple of days ago, so good job. Yes, we did cross the 10,000 subscriber mark, and I'd like to thank the community and everyone who has subscribed, listened, and commented on our videos for all of the support you have shown us over the last year. 10,000 is certainly no small feat, and we are very gracious for all the support you have shown. And just know that you are not simply a number. You are not subscriber 10,222. You are an individual that I respect and appreciate the support that you have shown me. I go through the comments on every video, read what you write. I view my DMs on Twitter when someone may send me a question, and I reply to as many as I can. So you, as an individual, are very respected, and your contributions to the channel are greatly gener- are greatly appreciated. So thank you for all the support you have shown us. And we have a special guest today. We have... Richard Hogue from Hogue's Law joining us. Welcome, Richard. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. It is a privilege to have you join us. And why don't you tell the listener a little bit about your YouTube channel of Hogue's Law? Absolutely. So I started the channel at Hogue Law at uh, what late 2018. Uh, and we do a little bit of everything. Uh, but the primary reason that I think folks come and drop by the channel is a show that we do called Virtual Legality, which is... Uh, weekly, num- number of times any given week, and we talk about uh, pop culture, video games predominantly, music, movies, television, the kind of things that people are reading about online or tweeting about or otherwise having discourse around. Uh, and we look at it from a business and law perspective, hopefully giving a little bit of additional perspective on how and why some of the stories are happening the way that you see them. So, you know, we've recently covered the lawsuits against CD Projekt and CD Projekt Red's development of Cyberpunk 2077 uh, and and things related to that, as well as going through a game publishing agreement and talking about the different sections and how uh, developers and publishers interact on those kinds of things, as well as um, some more kind of goofy stories about what might be happening in the world of corporate messaging or when uh, you might recall uh, Disney and Sony had a fight about who owned Spider-Man or whether or not Spider-Man would be in the MCU. We were able to talk about that. Uh, and, and things that people are otherwise interested in, hopefully with a little bit of additional perspective uh, on the channel. It's a very good channel. I do tune into it, especially when we see the news with gaming companies. You did a great video talking about the free melee movement, which yep. got the Smash community in a frenzy. And you <laughs> laid down the law and explained exactly what's happening there and why, yeah, it can look bad in a public point on Nintendo's side, but that. Yep. They do have the legal right to do what they're doing. And it's really a matter of should Nintendo do it from that public point of view? And is it worth it in the end? And so far, Nintendo views it as something that they should pursue. But it's definitely a channel that people who have an interest in the law side of the industry, especially with all these 
lawsuits with CD Projekt Red coming up. If you want to understand really what's happening, definitely advise everyone to check out Hoag's Law and get a little more insight into matters happening. Yeah, I just want to say as well, um, great channel. Uh, I'm a fan of the channel as well. Um, I, I kind of stumbled across it. I think maybe about a month ago now or six weeks ago when I was um, when I made that video about the um, emulation running on the Xbox Series X. That's and, right. I uh, think I covered that. Yeah, yeah. You, you kind of came back with um, some really good good points um, about it. So I, uh, I wanted just to say, yeah, great channel and keep up the awesome work, man. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, both of you. And now we brought you on today for a very specific reason. Nintendo is back in the news and they are once again slapped with a lawsuit. And it's a tale we have heard several times now. Nintendo is being sued over Joy-Con drift. And this isn't yep. a new matter. This has been an ongoing problem for Nintendo for what feels like several years. And this case was filed in Quebec. And it's another North American case of Nintendo being you know, slapped over their poor handling of Joy-Con drift. And in June of 2020... Nintendo president Furukawa came out and said, regarding the Joy-Con, we apologize for any trouble caused to our consumers. We are continuing to aim to improve our products, but as the Joy-Con is a subject of a class action lawsuit in the United States, and this is still a pending issue, we would like to refrain from responding about any specific actions. And that was in regards to being questioned as to whether Nintendo would fix the Joy-Con or at least address the issue. And Nintendo has been silent on this so far as North American president, Doug Bowser also dodged the question and gave a very inconsequential answer when asked <laughs> and where he said specific to the joy cons themselves, we've been working very closely with consumers if, and when they might have issues, whether it's a replacement or repair. And then what I will say, as we look at our repair cycles, we're always looking at what is being sent in and for what reasons and understanding that better. And without going into any details, it always gives us an opportunity to make improvements as we go forward. Now, what would you say this new lawsuit has in store for Nintendo? Is there reason that this could move forward or at least settle? So, I mean, I, I think, in order to fully talk about this, we have to talk about a couple of things. And that's jurisdictionally. Uh, a number of people come into my videos all the time and say, well, does this apply because the U.S. is trying to do this or Japan's trying to do that or EU is trying to do this? You know, the Nintendo's gotten sued in a couple of different jurisdictions. This one that is the most recent this week is in Quebec. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a quebec lawyer. I, I'm not a Canadian lawyer. I, my practice is in Michigan and I have general... Uh, experience primarily with uh, American law, but suffice it to say, uh, different jurisdictions can have different rules. Uh, and so in looking at the, the article uh, that talks about this, they point out that the Consumer Protection Act in Quebec has what uh, is effectively a default rule uh, that says you promise when you sell something to somebody living in Quebec uh, that it will fit the purpose for which it's intended. Um, which is a similar kind of concept in the U.S., and I can kind of correlate those if you're interested. Uh, but in the U.S., uh, where there is a generalized, more uh, default understanding that the courts and society in general, the states and the country, want to allow companies and individuals to waive things and disclaim them and change their rights and obligations, 
uh, Quebec doesn't appear to have that same kind of disclaimer language. They say this is exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get a product that is fit for its intended purpose. It's going to last for a reasonable amount of time. And we're going to interpret that based on an objective, reasonable person standard for the amount of money that you spent on it. And there's actually a section that I was looking at uh, just before we started doing this video that I was wondering if you could disclaim this at all. And they actually have a specific section in that Consumer Protection Act that says no consumer may waive these rights. So they can't waive them individually. The company can't disclaim them individually. And, you know, I can't make guarantees. And certainly I should put the disclaimer out when we talk about these things in general, that none of this is legal advice. Uh, if you want legal advice in your own situation with respect to Joy-Con Drift or anything else, you really have to seek out that individualized legal counsel. But we can talk in generalities for an informational perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and when you've got this kind of scenario where you've got a blanket rule that says it's going to be fit, it's going to last for a period of time, and you can't waive that, you can't get out of it at all, uh, then that's the kind of uh, recipe that would see something like Nintendo actually start to sweat a little bit versus when you talk about things in North America, and we can talk about their warranty language that they use here and the disclaimer language they use here, that will generally be upheld where they say, yeah, you get three months of warranty. If it breaks after three months, well, you're out of luck. And then unless it's political pressure or business pressure, we're probably going to win a legal action. That isn't the same across all jurisdictions. So, like, yeah, when we view Nintendo, especially in any lawsuit or court setting, their lawyers are vicious. We typically see them win most of their cases. (laughs) It's very rare for Nintendo to lose a court case. And the fact that this Joy-Con situation has been an ongoing matter and Nintendo has been silent and we haven't seen any out-of-court settlements, it does feel as though Nintendo is maybe preparing in the back of their mind they are going to have to settle or they're going to have to reach some sort of agreement. And all we've seen from the company in North America thus far is they've said, well, we'll repair or replace your broken Joy-Con now. But that took months of pressure for them to even begin to offer to the right. consumer. Right. Is that a direct, I guess, response to these lawsuits where they're saying, let's remedy the problem by offering a quick fix to this but we're not going to actually address the Joy-Con design flaw. We're just going to offer these repairs and hopefully mitigate the problem. Well, so, I mean, you heard me describe my channel as business and law, right? <laughs> and so I think there's there's always two metrics that you're looking at these things on. And from the legal perspective, I, I did a couple of videos on my channel talking about this, but I think Nintendo can probably win on the black letter law of their warranty and how it would be interpreted in most jurisdictions in the United States to say, look, we told you to have three months of warranty if it broke after that. And, and I think most of the, even the lawsuits against them were at like the 11 month mark. That seems to be when these things are dying mostly. Uh, and I think Quebec actually has that 11 month mark number in there as well, uh, that Nintendo could probably win those from a legal perspective. But the entirety of the game is not just the legal perspective. So Nintendo is starting to get all this pressure from these various journalistic outlets, and, and legitimately so. I mean, I, I don't know if you have had similar experiences, but I own, you know, a half dozen Joy-Cons, and I, for the most part, they're pretty junky. Um, you know, they have all sorts of issues, and I love the Switch as a product. I've never much liked the Joy-Con. I've switched almost entirely, no pun intended, to using the Pro Controller to play the games on that system, primarily because the Joy-Cons make me a little bit crazy, and I never know whether I'm going to use one of the good ones or one of the bad ones. And, and so they have this problem out there, and that is, regardless of legal liability, right? 
that's a business problem. Nintendo's known for hardy stock in terms of their consoles, dropping a Game Boy down three flights of stairs and having that kind of experience. And the Joy-Cons don't meet those. So they have an, a goodwill obligation to try to get out in front of that particular issue. From a legal perspective, yeah, when you get into different jurisdictions, and it looks like Quebec might be one of those, you do wind up having a little bit more exposure than you do in maybe the United States, maybe even in your home country of Japan. And you see this in other kind of contexts as well, right? When we talk about digital consumer rights, and I'm having videos about Steam or Epic Games or something like that, you see various jurisdictions, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like Australia, that have specific rules that get the Valves and the Epics of the world in more trouble than they might in other jurisdictions. So Nintendo's always playing that game, but I, I, I firmly believe they're working on different designs or trying to fix it up without too much additional cost behind the scenes. The problem they have is that there's millions and millions and millions and millions of the Joy-Con out there right now, kind of putting them in a bad light on a regular basis. So I think taking the step to repair and replace uh, was a relatively low-cost maneuver to effectively tell people, hey, if you're not satisfied, you get our our happiness guarantee. We know a number of you aren't going to even try to repair these things. Heck, I just mentioned I have a lot of junk ones in a basket under my TV, and it's just I haven't <laughs> I haven't tried to send them back. And we can still look like, hey, we're guaranteeing your satisfaction without really having a legal liability to do so. Yeah, this one, you know, we I think the best way one. The best thing to compare this to is, you know, obviously something like the Red Ring of Death issue that happened on the 360. Sure. And, you know, Red Ring of Death, that's that's absolute. You know, your system is is toast, right? So you, you have yep. no recourse other than send it back and get a, get a replacement. The Joy-Con drift issue is, is interesting because, uh, like you said, a lot of people just kind of live with it. Like, I, I have a Switch Lite that has Joy-Con drift and I just... It annoys me, but I, I kind of just learn to live with it. And I think a lot of other people, like you said, just kind of feel the same way. There is there is an opportunity to send it back to Nintendo and get a replacement if that it's, is the, the chosen path that you want to take. But ultimately, you know, th I think what Nintendo is doing here is they're basically subliminally telling you this isn't really a big deal just send your joy-con back we'll replace it for you no worries but they're not really addressing the issue and that is that this issue has been there since the first day and you know we're, yeah. we're into the fourth year of the hardware and it hasn't been addressed at all so yeah i mean i think um i think they're playing this very very smart they're not admitting any fault you know yeah. but there is a problem and I think the only way that Nintendo can, you know, get in trouble here is when more of these lawsuits start to come up and you know, will that will that happen? I don't know, but I think, you know, I think if if there is, you know, if there is um a way to put pressure on Nintendo, then more people have to come forward and say, "Look, this is unacceptable" because it really is. I mean, this this issue is 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 so widespread. It's bad, yeah. But it's it's not something that seems like it's it's got the same amount of respect as, say, the Red Ring of Death, as as I mentioned, you know. Well, I think part of that might be demographics. I mean, I think a lot of Switch purchases are going to the, the kid in the family that really wants to play Pokemon and may just be fighting through a junkie Joy-Con um, because, you know, that's, that's, just, that's just what they do. Um, so I, I think when you have the 360s go... Uh, and, and I don't know about you, I had to return, I think I had returned my 360 six or seven times before it came back with a different serial number and didn't die again. 
Yeah, um, I've had, I, and, I, I didn't have that bad bad luck, but I I've gone through about three or four of them myself. I, all I know is I, I remember bringing up bringing back the package, and, and they they were fully ready for me by like the fifth time I had gone back with it. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, it, it's not acceptable. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I mentioned that you can disclaim warranties in the United States, and and you're supposed to be able to price in essentially that there is a market. And I'm not saying the Joy-Cons are supposed to be this, but just philosophically, there is a market allowance in the United States for, I want to sell you junk. Mm-hmm. That at a lower price point, uh, the, the, the five below or the dollar store, and you, you, you go and you buy an air fan that is going to break down in three weeks, but you got it really cheap <laughs> and everybody understands that situation. Um, and so there, there's essentially a notion in the United States that that's okay. And, and technically, the Quebec laws kind of have that notion. They say that we'll take into account how much you paid for it and what a reasonable person would expect from this. The problem I have for, with that kind of procedure, and again, I'm an American lawyer. I'm not a Canadian lawyer. Is I look at something like that and say, that's fine. I understand where you're coming from. I understand the fairness and the spirit of that kind of law. I don't know what my obligations are. If I'm if I'm creating a product, when you say a court will determine whether or not I had a defect that hits this standard, I don't I don't know. And Nintendo can say, well, look, eighty dollars is not nothing, obviously, but it's also not eight hundred dollars. You're, you're getting a plastic piece of toy here, and if it lasts you a year, you know maybe a reasonable person should think that is in fact the case. And note also that. The longer the Joy-Con drift situation is out there and has been covered in all these outlets, the more that you can actually defend it and say, well, people knew what they were getting. Yeah. Uh, and it dies in a year. And also, we give free repairs if you want them. And, and I, I mentioned that I didn't think that that was necessarily a legal concept, but it is in part for these jurisdictions like Quebec and other places where if they are offering those repairs in those jurisdictions, and I don't pretend to know the various countries and whether they're doing those for those if they do offer those, that can mitigate damages, right? The one thing you have to bring in a lawsuit is how was I hurt by this? Um, and if you always had the option to repair it, yes, you can still claim a certain amount of hurt. It shouldn't have gone out to the market this way. I lose the rights to the product that I bought for a certain amount of weeks. And if that adds up enough, that's that's something that you can argue. But the other thing I tell folks on my channel when we're talking about video games, we're talking about hardware, we're talking about, oh, Rick, can they be sued for false advertising or a federal trade commission complaint and all these kinds of things? Is that the answer is broadly yes. The laws can apply to all these various things. But when we're talking about your joy cons, that's not when the regulatory bodies, that's not necessarily when all the statutes kick in to protect you. They're, they're more worried about things that kill you, bad pharmaceuticals, refrigerators that spoil your food, things of that nature, rather than joy con drift. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it fair. Doesn't mean you don't have a legal case. But it is quantifiably different from what the laws are, are, are mostly going to spend their resources protecting against. Yeah, as you brought up, when you look at the products, you are viewing, you know, the damage is done to you. And in the Quebec case, the plaintiff described playing her switch as impossible yeah. due to the Joy-Con drift. And that feels like emotional testimony. It's a little bit of hyperbole of. I can't play this. This is impossible. This is causing me distress. Where the rebuttal would simply be, you do have the option of buying another Joy-Con or you can send it in for a repair and you will be able to enjoy your product. So impossible is a very strong word, but it's to get that emotion. And this is very common in Sure, it's the initial complaint, right? But hold hold, hold on a minute. What what if it was on a Switch Lite? You can't just send your Joy-Cons back. you got to send the whole thing back. And I I have Joy-Con drift on my Switch Lite. 
So what do I do? Do I, do I have to send the system back? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and I do think it's a worse situation. I, I think one of the things that was really interesting is when they started to market the Switch Lite really well, simultaneous to to all these things initially happening was it was immediately obvious that it was a bigger problem for the things that were locked into the system yeah. than it was for just taking a thing and putting it in an envelope and getting it back in a little while. I, I think that um, was the, Yeah, I think the, Nintendo's got a bigger problem for the light sales. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me that was probably the biggest surprise was when the light did come out. We kind of assumed that they had addressed the problem, but we yeah. quickly found out, like literally like days or weeks after the light had come out, that it was exactly the same you know, mechanism inside and it was going to start to fail. And surely enough, you know, um, mine's, mine's failed, you know, and, and I think that was kind of the most interesting part for me, you know, was that they didn't address the problem there. And I feel like they will never admit that this is a problem, you know, a widespread issue. They're always going to say this is a isolated thing. And if you have a problem, we can, we'll we'll send it, send it to us, for a, a free repair, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll send you um, a replacement, or whatever. But I don't think they'll yeah. ever, they'll ever acknowledge their, their fault for this. Well, I mean, there's two things going on there, right? I mean, you, you read out some of the the statements uh, that were made here, and I, I thought they were funny. There's a couple of things that I would say about that. One is, uh, so from the corporate lawyer side of things, uh, which people don't necessarily like, it mostly doesn't behoove them to say much of anything with respect to the lawsuits or, or the defect claims or, or anything like that. From it, from purely a legal perspective, let's not talk about PR or business for just a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's very little to be gained uh, and, and a lot of ways that you can go wrong. Um, and in fact, you see some of those with some of the messaging that I've, I've looked at. We just talked about CD Projekt Red at the top. That you can make statements that don't help you on a public relations scale, don't really help you on a legal scale. And at that point, you're not you're not doing yourself a, a good service. Doesn't mean we have to like it on the consumer level. And it's obvious that these statements are hollow. Um, but essentially, when they go out with any statement at all, it's from that second kind of paradigm, which is business and trying to have some kind of public relations. We know there's an issue potentially, but we will make sure you're satisfied and repair it. But it's probably pretty isolated, so don't worry about it too much. But also, if you want to fix, we'll fix it. Is not is not anything. Right. Because they want to make sure that it's not a statement that goes out there that is somehow going to be used against them in one of these lawsuits. And I think they do an okay job with that. And unfortunately, that comes across as fairly milquetoast in a lot of respects. Uh, But it certainly is the right kind of legal pose to take when going out with public conversations like that. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that owl has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The no. way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. Yeah, because I recall when we had the Red Ring of Death with the Xbox mm-hmm. 360. It did end up turning out to be a design flaw within the system itself, and Microsoft never admitted that design flaw. They simply released the revision, and it was the Xbox 360 Elite, which had a better heatsink, 
and it fixed that problem. Yeah, it's just better, right? The old, the old yeah. one was fine. This one's just better. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, this one's just better. We're going to get rid of those original models that are having all these problems. And eventually, you're just going to replace it. Like, I had three Xbox 360s get yep. the Red Ring of Death. And it was yep. always caused by the same game, Gears of War. Okay. I don't, I don't know why, but it seemed like that game just pushed the system harder than other games. And eventually, I just got fed up with it. And I bought myself an Xbox 360 Elite. And I never mm-hmm. had the problem again. And if Nintendo is... Maybe their plan is to release a quiet revision of the Joy-Con that fixes this design flaw. It's just going to fade away, and maybe in there, that's their plan. It's going to gradually shift away. The problem will no longer be relevant, and in the few cases where it's still springing up, they're just going to go right back to that, hey, we have the repair service, we'll replace it, or you can fix it yourself. Like, I have had Joy-Con drift on my launch switch on the left analog stick. Okay. And I lift up the flap. I put some electrical cleaner in it and it works. And I haven't had any problems with it. I've believe I've cleaned it two or three times now. And it, it seems to fix the problem for a good six to eight months before it starts to become prevalent again. Yeah. And that's where, when we compare it to like the Xbox 360, the Xbox was just a lot harder to replace. It was a more expensive item. It mm-hmm. was a pain to buy a whole new system. A Joy-Con, you can buy them individually for, I believe they're $39.99 now. Yep. Yeah, I know they were 50 for a while, right, by themselves? Right. Like yeah, I think they dropped it $10, and I think it was in November they gave it a price cut. So you can kind of view it as that it's easy to replace. And I know I'm sounding like a Nintendo apologist here, but I think for the, <laughs> I think for this conversation, it's not bad to have someone who's on the side of law, you know, Richard here, and me being a little more like, I'm Nintendo. I'm going to come up with these devil's advocate reasons of, you're not going to beat us in court. We have, it's $40. It breaks after a year. It's not that big of an investment. Oh, we have the replacement policy. So we give you all these options. And that's where the the crux of the situation comes in is Nintendo, they they are a very intelligent company they know how to counter anybody out there. And that's why we don't see Nintendo lose many court cases. We very rarely see them have a class action lawsuit file against them, and then they end up having to settle. We've seen this with Sony. We saw it happen with the PlayStation Network hack. They came out and they offered a couple of free games to everyone who was impacted, and they were also had a class action lawsuit against them with the PlayStation 3 OS when they allowed Linux and then they removed that option. And there was a massive class action settlement somewhere in the area of hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you had a PlayStation 3 with a certain serial code, they sent you $3 and like 75 cents. And they actually went to court a few times over that issue. Cause I remember getting two or three checks and the grand total of like $12 over a 12 year span. But we never see this with Nintendo, and it feels like with this Joy-Con situation, Nintendo is probably going to skate by with no real repercussions. I think the the uh, the Linux thing that you mentioned, Nate, other mm-hmm. OS, the removal of that was was interesting in a number of ways, but mostly because they offered a feature that they took away. So there was, you know, if you bought a PlayStation right. on the box somewhere 
it would say something like you know can run linux or can you know can run other os mm-hmm. uh, and that feature was was just removed and the removal of that feature really really upset a lot of people i mean if you take a feature away that is advertised um then yeah there's there's grounds there i think for a lot of people to be upset and 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 start filing lawsuits against the company yeah and that's where it's it's an interesting issue and it doesn't seem like we're really going to have a resolution in the near future nintendo if they are actively working on a revision of the joy con they'll get that to market when they can and they'll hope that that just remedies the current drifting problem but as we've you know we've touched on if we just view this as a PR point, Nintendo's come out with good PR. We offer that free replacement plan. From the corporate standpoint, it's we're going to stay quiet. We're not going to say anything because if we come out with a wrong statement, as Richard has said, if they come out with a poor statement, it's them acknowledging that they are aware of the problem and then they basically admit fault. And that's what they're looking to avoid. So it's... It's a complex issue because we see the law firms in North America where they sent out emails to people asking individuals to send in video clips, I believe, of of at least 90 seconds demonstrating how the Joy-Con is drifting and how it's malfunctioning, how they want you to describe all the issues you're having, if you've had repairs or not, and tell you how many times you've had the the repairs and how the communication with Nintendo support was... Like they are trying to build as big of a suit against Nintendo as they can. But from the outside looking in, it doesn't really seem as though Nintendo has given enough ammunition in this case. And you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Richard, but (laughs) it seems like Nintendo has played their cards incredibly well and they're not showing any vulnerability. Well, I mean, to me, you know, it's it's an interesting question. I think people are justified to be upset that the controllers are a little bit more junky than they thought they would be when they originally invested in the Switch ecosystem. And, you know, Joy-Con Drift kind of takes up all the oxygen in the room, but mine have connectivity issues. I don't love the Joy-Cons. But I tend to agree that Nintendo couldn't play it much better from the perspective of trying to maintain their own equity and, and not have legal exposure while at the same time acknowledging that they're, they're probably burning at least some goodwill with some of their more staunch backers and fans because they had been known as the company whose stuff just worked and you really didn't need to think about it. And it wasn't the same as the constantly updating Xboxes and Playstations and, and the Nintendo was the, the console you could get your kids and not have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think they're playing it fine once this has happened. Certainly, from just a consumer perspective, not a corporate lawyer perspective, I would have hoped that even though obviously the goal is to keep the cost down and make money selling Joy-Cons, that they would have figured out something a little bit better that had a little bit longer life, that lasted a little bit uh, under stress more and and could be something that I, I valued a little bit more. Because I love the Switch as a product. I like a lot of the games they've released on it. And I've basically moved to Pro Controller only, which is fine as long as you're willing to do the extra expense. Uh, but I, I would have liked to have seen in the box those kinds of things be a little better. And that's coming from a guy that likes Nintendo and Nintendo games uh, and not from a guy looking at it from a legal perspective where I tend to agree. They, they've, they've, they've kept quiet. Uh, they haven't done the foot faults that we've seen from, frankly, a lot of other companies in the video game industry facing their own issues, whatever they might be. 
And, you know, they, they are generally going to survive this. I hope that they're expending some resources to provide uh, some kind of redesign, either for, you know, the, the permanently out there in the Ether Switch Pro uh, or in some other fashion. Do you think that's probably the realistic outcome here is that Nintendo is just going to do the revision and that's it? We're probably not going to see any of these cases find a settlement like the U.S. case from, I believe it was last October, that was gathering all that evidence. Do you really think that hearing goes anywhere? So class actions in general take a year or two, uh, bare minimum. Um, So I I think those will continue to proceed behind the scenes. Um, Nintendo might well try to get them dismissed, um, certainly in the U.S., uh, where (laughs) different people argue the politics of these things on my channel all the time, but like it or not, the U.S. is generally going to abide by the freedom to contract and, and what those disclaimers say in the warranty, which says we are not giving you a warranty of merchantability. We're not giving you a warranty for fitness for a particular purpose. It's three months uh, for defects and we'll fix them. They're, they're, they're unlikely, I think, long term to, to lose that. Um, the other jurisdictions are a little bit more up in the air. Now, there's fewer sales in those jurisdictions in general. Um, so you might see settlements just to get rid of it. Lawyers are expensive. Um, and if it's not going to cost you that much to just kill the thing, sometimes that's the right answer, just looking at it from an economics and law perspective. Um, but I don't see a lot of movement there. And again, yeah, you're not going to see a Joy-Con Plus, I don't think, that actually advertises that it's fixed. <laughs> you will just probably have some news report somewhere say, hey, I noticed the the serial number is slightly different on the back and we've played it for 400 hours and it doesn't drift. And, and you go, yeah, okay. They figured it out. They nailed it. Or people smarter than me going in, breaking one open and saying, oh, it doesn't have the same grid thing that, that causes all the trouble. Um, and so that's that's likely what you will see is some news story somewhere that says, hey, it's different now. So, Richard, in your opinion, what do you think it would take for Nintendo to become nervous of a, a lawsuit like this? Would there be anything you think or do you think they're just, you know, they're just going to cruise through this? If one of the jurisdictions had a case that was going to survive a kind of summary dismissal and get into a legitimate discovery stage, and if Nintendo was actually the nefarious mustache-twirling bad actors that some like to portray them as, there could possibly be you know, some kind of smoking gun email that says, oh yeah, we know we're skimping out on these parts, but people aren't going to care. We're Nintendo, gosh darn it. And, and if you got that then sky's the limit. All mm-hmm. hell breaks loose. Yeah. If, if you have executives saying we're going to put a fraud on the market, then you, uh, all the lawsuits open up. And so when you're talking about these kinds of things, class actions in different jurisdictions, one of the concerns is, do we cut it off before discovery? Because even if you're not that bad actor, you don't know what's in your years of emails and what could be misperceived or otherwise kind of tortured to within an inch of its life to show that you're a bad actor. And so that's why you see a lot of the times in the news or elsewise, if it if it gets past that dismissal stage, if a class is certified, if it looks like it's going into the read the executives email section, uh, sometimes that's when settlements happen where the, where the, where the company says, all right, what, what, what do you need? We, we, we really don't want to do the, the email dump uh, and everything else. And so that's that's what I would say is a possibility. I don't who knows? We're all speculating here. I, I don't think Nintendo did that. Undoubtedly. They tried to keep that cost low or as low as possible on the Joy-Con, and there'll, there'll be something to that effect. Uh, but I don't think they were deliberately trying to create a situation where, well, we know it'll die just after warranty, and then 50 or $80 more, here we go, Nintendo. I, I, I doubt that that's in an email somewhere. 
Yeah. Do you think this is, is this comparable to something like, um, you know, cell phones that have batteries that kind of just over time, they just start to um, get weaker and weaker. And then, you know, within a year of owning a cell phone, you've got like a battery that lasts maybe, you know, an hour before you have to recharge. Is, Is it a similar type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it could be argued that way. That's a little bit distinct because you also have kind of cross-competing arguments of the forced obsolescence and making the operating systems on the phones deliberately take more power that we've seen in certain circumstances yeah. uh, that create some of those issues. But but it's certainly like, as I said before, it's is this a is this a junk product and is it a known toy slash junk product? Was it supposed to be kind of more consumer-grade electronics? What are the expectations that somebody would have had on it? And yeah, I know that $80 and $50 and $40 is, is a chunk of change. It's, it's, it's a lot of money for a lot of people. It's also not that major appliance or that car money. And so you aren't going to necessarily have the judges and the courts swoop in and say, oh, my heavens, it's not even really the PlayStation 3 money or the Xbox 360 money. It's a smaller, more compartmentalized purchase, which doesn't mean that companies can just you know, screw you over, but it does mean that you have a relatively higher and harder case to make to show that your life was really affected, damages should be given, and that the court system should spend its time on an issue like this. There's there's obviously limited resources across the entire judicial system in every jurisdiction, and so you've always got what resources are going to be deployed to what ends when you ask that question. Now, could Nintendo actually go to... I? I'll say court, but even in the discussion with these law firms, say this is just a case of wear and tear. Every mm-hmm. product has wear and tear. We've tested it. The Joy-Cons will function for, let's say, a thousand hours. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you see the degrading happen and you may potentially get some of these problems. Is that actually a stance they could lean on as their defense? Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely one of the things you can say. Um, and, and you'd frame it in PR terms, right? And just say, well, you know, it's a thousand hours. And I guess we've just made too many good games that have engaged people for too many hours on the Switch. Tell your friends. Uh, and so that's why the Joy-Cons are drifting as soon as you are seeing them drift. Uh, but, you know, we're going to see if we can get it up to 2,000 hours. But we also, you know, your honor or whomever, we, we didn't want to price people out of the market. And in order to get to that 2,000 uh, hour limit, it would have had to have been a $150 controller. And we, we cut what we think was a substantial bargain to make sure that everybody could enjoy the products that we had on offer. Uh, you know, so you, you, you do all that kind of stuff, um, <laughs> whether or not that defense makes sense uh, has a lot to do with the specifics of the situation and, and what your tests actually show and when this, when the joy cons are going. So you actually have some empirical proof type stuff there. Um, but it is, what is your expectation? Because they say, Oh, I played it for 11 months. That's going to be different for me, who unfortunately doesn't get to play Switch very often, than somebody that's like, it's on their only console, and they just love it to death, and they play it every day for four hours. That That's different in, in wear and tear, uh, as you suggest with the 1,000-hour test concept. Because mm-hmm. like as we've been discussing this, this is a really complex issue, and the deeper yeah. we've gotten, I just don't see a way that we as the consumer are coming out of this class action, at least in North America, in a way that we're going to get a check from Nintendo for, you know, 50 cents, if that's the path that this goes. It does sound well, like Nintendo. class action. We could talk about that too, yeah. <laughs> it seems like Nintendo may have the majority of their bases covered here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, we saw Switch Lights after two or three weeks 
after launch starting Mm -hmm. to drift but you're right i mean a lot of the times a lot of the times this is perception as well like i think i think there's no real maybe there is maybe there isn't in a document somewhere but i haven't seen it but there's no real kind of you know meaning about what joy-con drift is you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like i think i think it might mean different things different people you know sometimes um you, you know you may see it or you may think you see it when it's actually not drifting if that makes sense i mean there's 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 what's known as a dead zone in video games sure. um and sometimes you know if the game isn't coded properly um that dead zone may may be enough to trigger you know movement without you actually pressing the controller that's not necessarily the same thing as as joy-con drift right like that's not a hardware fault that's that's something in the game that's that's basically you know causing movement of of the character or the player but it's not a hardware issue, right? So, you know, how do you distinguish between the two of those things? And that's where it, it really starts getting tricky to, to kind of explain. And I think some people that I've seen, I've seen videos of people say they have Joy-Con drift, but in some instances, it's it's not necessarily is Joy-Con drift. It, it's, it's, it's like part of the game or, or something like that. So I think, you know, adding that into the mix as well, adding that just general confusion about what it actually is, kind of helps nintendo's argument as well that that look this isn't really a, a big a big deal you know we're gonna just we're gonna hold firm on this we're not gonna you know we're not gonna admit anything you know yeah well i mean it would be the burden on the plaintiff to to go and show that this is a, a thing not just for their joy con but really across the class uh, of people that they are claiming to have been affected uh and if they can't then you know that's that's an instant loss yep. um you know and as i said you know, one of the things that I don't love about my Joy-Con is it has connectivity issues, and, and certainly Nintendo can come in there and say, well, you're sitting too far away from it, even though I think I'm sitting a reasonable distance away from it, or I've got too much fabric in the room. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things that when you talk about connectivity, you can have as a defense, but I do note that that presents similarly to Drift, whereas if you kind of lose connectivity a little bit, your character in a Switch game will just proceed going in whatever direction they last got the order, and that can feel like drifting if you've suddenly lost like the, the Joy-Con being seen by the Switch. Um, so I, you got a bunch of different issues compiled on each other, and certainly the law and the justice system in general, as you have undoubtedly seen, is not always the best suited to deal with high technology of any kind when I know you might not think Joy-Cons and Switches are high technology. They are for a lot of lawyers and judges. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge in and of itself to convince this 65-year-old judge whose best piece of technology in their house is a CRT TV and they have their rotary phone that this Joy-Con drift or connectivity issue is a major deal. They're looking at it as a foreign piece of technology saying, why is this a big deal? There can be a lot of technology issues with judges, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I was thinking of, every product... It is known you have a very small percentage of manufacturing flaws. Yeah. Anything that's mass produced, some part of that is going to have an issue. Could Nintendo pivot towards that and say, this is a very small percentage of the Joy-Cons actually finding this issue? Social media simply amplifies it and makes it a bigger, appear bigger than it really is. This is well below that threshold of 1%. Maybe. I mean, I, certainly the argument kind of dovetails with what the warranty is for, uh, right? You, you are effectively getting a warranty from Nintendo for those three months when you buy a Joy-Con on the premise that you should get it 
repaired or replaced. That's a right that you should have if the factory screwed up uh, on whatever percentage that is. And, and factories screw up. Factories are run by human beings. Human beings screw up. And so Nintendo says, we're going to cover you if you get one of those screwed up devices. This is a little bit different than a straight line manufacturing defect um, and looks a lot more like a design defect, which is what we would call latent, is hidden for a longer period of time. Uh, and you know, people that have analyzed the structure, certainly my experience with the Joy-Cons suggests that it will affect more uh, than, uh, than most, uh, if not all of the Joy-Cons, if you experience the exact same usage case uh, across the Joy-Cons. Um, and so I, I think they could use that. I think they could argue that it's, uh, it's, you've worn and torn it more than uh, would otherwise be expected. They've got a lot of things that they could deploy. I, I will say this is the kind of thing that looks like a latent defect, looks like a design flaw and could defeat those kinds of claims if you had somebody that was well-resourced and just really, really wanted to bring the, the action against Nintendo. So my question to you, Richard, is if you were um, offered to be a, a, an attorney for someone that was filing a suit against Nintendo, would you take the case or would you be like, no, I, I don't think this is the right play for me? Well, in your hypothetical, I will assume that I was, I'm was i a litigator uh, in that particular case because I'm, I'm a business transactions guy. I'm the one writing those warranties mm -hmm. uh, and, and writing the contracts. I'm not suing over them. I send you across the street. Uh, but in terms of the litigation, I, you know, it, it, it really does depend. Um, there's a reason that plaintiffs' class action lawyers exist, and that's because in a class action, even though you might get the $4 check or the $2 check or the $0.50 cent check in the case of Joy-Cons, a big chunk of the money that might be received goes to the law firm. Uh, and class actions are enormously difficult to maintain uh, because you have to manage a whole bunch of uh, different people and interests and you're fighting a big corporation with a whole handful of lawyers of their own. Uh, and so to some extent, the lawyers earn that money. Uh, and so that's why they, they look for that. They, they try to go find those instances where they can represent a class like this. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Certainly in the United States where I practice law, I wouldn't love to bring a products liability claim on a small end consumer electronics device that has a difficult latent defect design flaw possibility that may be an issue to prove in the long run when their contract terms otherwise completely disclaim uh, the fitness for a particular purpose, the merchantability and the other things that might I, I might otherwise use to bring the case. So um, I would say no, but understand also if you haven't talked to a lot of lawyers uh, that uh, we are, in general, a risk-averse uh, breed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I analyze it and say, you know, I could spend thousands of hours, years of my productivity potentially, uh, and come away with zero dollars. As a small business practitioner like myself, that's not a bet I can make anyway. Yeah. I mean, this, it does sound like Nintendo, they know the warranty they've written, they know the language they've used, and all of these, you know, all the paper that they throw in the Joy-Con boxes and the Switch itself. And it seems like they know that you can come at us, but we feel as though we're well within the rights of that warranty that folks like you have written up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're not even admitting the, the, they're not even admitting the problem, but what they're saying is if you do have a problem, you can, you can follow these steps, but they're not saying, <laughs> yes, we have a widespread issue with this. Yeah, they're yeah as I said, the bigger issue might be PR at the end of the day. Right. You know, if it continues to be in the news, if it continues to be a problem, if there continues to be lawsuits, 
your bigger issue is you're the family, the family friendly brand that that has the indestructible goods. If that isn't the case, then then what market share do you lose but that, on that? Premise? That doesn't matter either, Richard, because they'll just announce Pokemon, the next Pokemon game, or they'll they'll announce hey, Pokemon Snap. We're yeah, there, man. Exactly. They'll, they'll announce the next, um, you know, Zelda game, and and everyone just you know forgets about Joy-Con drift. I get that, but on the margins, they could they they could have costs. I mean, that's that's what I see as their biggest right. possibility of loss on something like this, uh, which isn't to say they couldn't possibly settle in the Quebecs of the world. Um, but it wouldn't probably move the needle for them. Like we've all experienced Joy-Con drift to yes. a certain extent, be it just the Joy-Con or on a Switch Lite. Has that situation changed your opinion of Nintendo in any way? Are you still going to go out and buy their next hardware or a new controller accessory? Has it changed for you in any way? I, I might be at a different uh, a different uh, stage of life uh, in terms of having played all these consoles, depending on. Uh, your your listenership or your viewership, but I, I kind of view them as toys in a certain extent in terms of what I'm buying. I don't assume that what I'm going to get from a consumer electronic at the console level is a, is a Lexus or a Rolls Royce. Um, right. And so while I would like to see the Joy-Cons one notch more durable and, and a little bit better, uh, they, they're roughly what I expect when I spend two or $300 on, on an electronics device. Um, so... Not for me personally, but certainly, as we say on my channel, reasonable minds can differ on that. Uh, and I don't blame anybody who looks at that and says, my my goodness, I spent $80 on these things and they're junk. Yeah, I mean, Nate, to answer your question, it wouldn't it wouldn't stop me from buying, you know, the next revision of hardware or whatever Nintendo brought out. But I will say that, um, you know, Richard mentioned he uses a pro controller almost exclusively. I'm kind of the same these days. I tend to not use Joy-Cons because um one, like I said my, you know, my Switch Lite is drifting, so I just, you know, pair up the the Pro controller most of the time. And two, you know, those connectivity issues sometimes also um can happen as well. So um but it's not enough for me to say I'm I'm boycotting Nintendo. I'm not buying I'm I'm not buying what's next for them because I mean obviously the the good certainly far outweighs the the bad in this scenario. Yeah, I love the Switch. Yeah, I mean, I I'd say I'm in that similar boat. Is I, I had the Joy-Con issue, I fixed it, or I temporarily fixed it with the electrical cleaner, and I'm still going to be there for Nintendo's next release, or even going back to the Xbox 360. It broke. I replaced it. Broke again. Replaced it. Broke again. Replaced it. Finally, just got the Xbox 360 Elite, and it was all because the games that were coming out at the system at the time they were things I felt I had to play, and even though the company kept giving me a shoddy product i was still ready to hand them more money because i want to continue yeah. being part of that ecosystem and nintendo has built up a lot of that goodwill due to the games they release of hey our controller maybe it isn't up to the standard of nintendanium of the game boys that survived the gulf war but it's good enough you're paying you know 40 or 80 dollars for them they last you a little you know we'll say a year and then you start getting some of these problems you replace it but we're giving you a new Zelda, a new Mario game. We know you're going to keep coming back. So you kind of deal with that minor inconvenience because you want to continue playing these games. And I guess that's Nintendo's strength here is they keep giving us a product that we want to enjoy and we're willing to endure some shoddy treatment of them in terms of accessory quality. And maybe as a business, they know that. They know they have us in that vice and we're not going to escape it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think the only thing that I'm surprised about is that, like I said previously, it's been four years since the launch, right? And you know, it's still it's still something that happens. They haven't silently just addressed it with new manufacturer or different parts or whatever. You know, it's it's still a thing that does happen. Yeah, it's like whoever they go to for their supplies, they're getting what they're getting. They're putting it together and they're saying. This is good enough. Whatever internal testing or stress testing we have done to this product, it is meeting our standard. And if it fails out in the real world after 11 months, you can fix, you can get it replaced. Yep. But we're okay with that situation. And I guess the consumer really hasn't stood up beyond these lawsuits. Nobody's boycotting the company. Games are selling at record-breaking numbers. Hardware is selling at record-breaking pace. So Nintendo's really not feeling any repercussions from the quality of the Joy-Con. Because no. as you both have said, you've bought Pro Controllers instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I solved the problem, right? No, the Switch had a fantastic year. I mean, Animal Crossing in and of itself was just crazy. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, this isn't going into the bucket of the, the hated companies that it's so often reported <laughs> on uh, across video games journalism uh, as of yet. Um, but it is interesting to see because, yeah, I think historically they've been a little bit better about uh, just working. And certainly I think in my own head, it's not going to prevent me from buying anything. Uh, but I, I certainly think of them now as a little bit more junky than I did before the Switch generation. Yeah. Yeah, because everyone's always held Nintendo up to that high standard of superior quality. You know, if you bought an Xbox controller... Maybe it would drift. Maybe the analog stick would break or one of the bumper buttons would get stuck. You got All a PlayStation. my leather would come off my Elite controller. <laughs> yeah, like PlayStation 3 controller. <laughs> Those triggers are loose as possible on my controllers now. If I press back on the R2 button, it's just this limp, floppy thing. I'm like, you don't even work. But it was like, oh, it's a PlayStation controller. I'm kind of expected this from Sony. You never expected it from Nintendo because you could take your Game Boy, throw it against the wall. You could take the GameCube, drop it from a third-story building, drag it across the street at the back of a car, run it over with the car, sure. put a disc in, and you would turn it back on, and it would work. And now we got the Switch, Nintendo's most fragile device ever produced, and it is disappointing some people. And, I mean, it is good they are being taken to court over this situation people are holding them accountable but as we've touched on in this hour it doesn't really seem like nintendo is probably gonna be really i don't think they're going to be punished for this at least not in the court system just in the court of public perception yeah like i said i you know a number of the jurisdictions you you might get to a level where they settle um but not not the main ones as best i can tell and I think the United States is is the one where we saw this first uh, kind of filed and looked at. And, and I continue to think, you know, I, I, I covered it on my channel. But when it happened that uh, Nintendo's got its ducks in a row in terms of its contract language, and you're really going to have to find a judge or court uh, that decides to really use what we call equitable principles, the, the, the principles of justice rather than contract that just says, oh, I think it's it's fair to do this to, to, to punish Nintendo rather than to actually look at the contract law. Uh, and that's just unlikely in this circumstance, in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And now we can move into some of the Streamlab questions from the week. 
We had a dollar donation from Liam Warner, who writes, Proud to say I became a new subscriber to MVG the other day. Hey, thank you. I watched his DSiWare delisting video out of panic, which led me to watching a lot of his other videos out of fascination. <laughs> really great and underrated content. Appreciate the kind words there, Liam. Thank you so much. We then had another dollar donation from Liam Werner, who wrote, How do you feel about the Game Explain controversy with having, with more having come out since the last Spawncast? I'm conflicted supporting the channel now because of how talented people like John Cartwright were paid. Should channels like that be supported? Ooh, it's it's a complex issue. I know everybody who was involved at Game Explain. I know the individuals from Good Vibe Games, Ash, Steve, and Derek. I know John Cartwright. I also know Andre. And it's just a heartbreaking situation all in all they they did deserve to be paid better and i believe andre is looking at this moment as a point of reflection and learning and he will grow from it but the important thing to take away from it is that ash steve and derek are now happy at good vibe games they were able to take their experience at game explain and move on to something better for them john cartwright was able to use his experience at game explain and go to nintendo life where he is thriving and he's very happy. So I think that should be the takeaway of the situation is look at the individuals who were impacted and how they have moved on and they're in a better place in life right now. We then had a $10 donation from Skittittles who wrote, now that we know Disney is shopping the Star Wars IP around to different developers, which of the three would you develop a Star Wars game and which company or studio would they have to make it? I'd love to see Double Fine make an indie Star Wars game. I think I've always wanted KOTOR three um, to you know to to be made. There was there was some rumors about it you know years ago, um, and I'd like to see Bioware do it. You know, get the old Bioware. I mean, I know that's probably a, a <laughs> bit of a, a a stretch to say that, but um, you know, get the band back together again. Get get drew carpishan back writing the story and and get get all the 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 talent that that has departed that company and um bring him back for for one last hurrah get get kotor three that's what i want it's a good choice man how do you follow up that (laughs) um i've always just liked the gamecube Rogue Leader games. Yeah, the Factor 5 games were fun. Oh, yeah, if the Factor 5 guys could come back and Nintendo could make a deal with them to make those HD, get them on the Switch, that'd be my interest. But I'm not a big Star Wars fan in general, so those were oh, really no, the I'm only off this cast. I'm leaving. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, about never... you, uh, what about you, Richard? What, what's your, what's your uh, ultimate fantasy there? Well, you know, I, I've loved Star Wars my whole life, and I think that the... Um, the times that I really remember are the, are the wacky, the wacky times when they would really start to experiment. Dark Forces was an experiment. Yoda stories, yep. all sorts of weird stuff. I, I would love to see some actual branch out stuff that's just not what you're expecting at all. Like uh, taking the XCOM template and using it as like the Republic sending out Jedi to do fights of some kind, or uh, to have a um, like a, a Jedi Academy type game. Uh, that's done in the venue of like Atlas doing a JRPG persona style uh, where you've got like 
classes and social interactions and then having to deal with force beasts or whatever it might be like something really different that we haven't gotten to see when we've really been locked now in for a decade of not so bad multiplayer games uh, from EA and then one kind of okay third person adventure. I I would love to see just crazy stuff, economic simulators uh, for the galaxy, whatever genre you can think of. I think Star Wars can fit into it, but you need the right developer. So I'm looking forward to it. I did a video on it where I said, this is great. I don't hate EA. I'm not that kind of guy. And I think EA is going to continue to have a relationship with Lucasfilm. And that's great. They can continue to make those games. But more developers, more projects, better. Even if half of those are bad, yeah. you got more. You get more darts at the dartboard. I think we're going to have some fun Star Wars times pretty soon. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to see what uh, Ubisoft creates with the license. Hopefully, we don't end up with a Assassin's Creed Star Wars game. But... We probably will because they like to use that same structure over and over again. It's massive, right? So we're going to get Division Star Wars. We're going to get like outlaws and bounty hunters on like a planet uh, doing Division stuff. <laughs> probably. They could make a Mandalorian game in sure. the style of Division. See, we just we just put that into the universe. So now when it happens, if people hate it. They can blame us. Hey, I, I, I people came in. I did. I said star Wars freed on my video. And I said, well, Disney hires Ubisoft. And they're like, Oh God. I was like, okay, first of all, it's just good. It doesn't matter whether you like the Ubisoft product or not. It's, it's just good that it's not going to be exclusive anymore. And hopefully they just let, I, I would love to see them just let some random three person studios that have a good idea, go for it. Uh, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But like to really, you know, take it like the Warhammer license and just, Make a whole bunch of weird stuff, and you'll get some real gems out of that. That's true. Then had a dollar donation from Jackie G, who wrote, When do you believe the next major Nintendo console will be released? Usually Nintendo has short-term lifespans for home consoles than handhelds. However, the Switch certainly could change that due to it being both. Keep up the great work. Um, I mean, if we're talking about the Switch successor, as in a Switch 2, I would estimate probably 2023, but we should have a revision, which should be fairly substantial in terms of overall enhancements come in late 2021, unless it gets delayed into very early 2022, but definitely definitely within Nintendo's next fiscal year. But if you mean a successor, it's probably a few years out still. Yep, I would agree. Well, they're enjoying this half-generation spot, right? So that's been working for them. So they'll be right in the middle of this current PlayStation, Xbox generation, I would say. Yeah, Nintendo likes to go to that beat of their own drum. They don't abide by anyone else when they start new generations. Nintendo's just like, yeah, we're going to start it halfway through yours. Then we had a $20 donation from iKaler15. Wrote, do you think a Banjo-Kazooie remaster remake will ever happen? Since the Crash and Spyro games have done so well, it confuses me that Microsoft hasn't gotten on that train. Thank you for all the great content. I mean, Rare Replay, you can play those games right now, even though they're not they're not remakes or remasters. Um, so, I mean, is it something beyond that as far as what they're looking for? Because, I mean, you can't play those games right now. Yeah, you can play yeah, the HD versions. You can play that on 360, Xbox One, or Xbox Series S and X. I don't know if they would go back and do a full-on remake in the style of Crash or the Spyro trilogy releases. That would be a lot of work. But I, 
I don't think we've seen the end of Banjo. I think we'll see the IP return with a new game sometime this generation. Just be a question of who's going to develop it. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. Rare's doing too well with Sea of Thieves. Yep. <laughs> yeah. They have like, what is it up to now? 15 million or 20 million? What a great act- story Sea of Thieves is, by the way. I mean, I thought that was dead in the water <laughs> when it came out. And they, uh, they did a great job. They have. They've put a lot of effort into that game. They have a very active user base, and they've made that game into something special. And it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, it's it's actually a very interesting story to see how Rare is going through their own renaissance right now. And it's not the Rare we fell in love with during the Super NES N64 era, but they've have completely rebuilt themselves and reinvented themselves, and they're doing very well with Sea of Thieves and. You know, the future for Rare is bright. Ben had a dollar donation from Justin Time. I like that pun. First time donating. I asked this question during a spawncast as well, so if you don't have another idea, it's okay. If two first-party studios had to be swapped between Sony, Microsoft, or Nintendo, which two developers would you choose? Love you guys. That's a tough question. My God, how do you how do you how do you how do you answer this? I I answered that on the Spawncast, and I said I would swap Retro Studios for Rare. Ooh, that's a that's a good pick, Nate. I, I like Retro Studios. I'm not sure about Rare though, but I I would go with Retro, and uh, yeah, I mean I I could I could I could do the same thing. I think. <laughs> I think that's that's a good swap. I think I'd move Obsidian over to Sony, and I'd Ooh. probably give Microsoft Naughty Dog. Ooh, man! Ooh. Wow, that's so big moves. Hey, uh, I mean, I like that. I like that pick to me. It's it's a heavy duty move, but I could, yeah, I'm 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 good with that in in general terms. You know what? That's actually a smart play because with Microsoft acquiring Bethesda you almost don't need obsidian right because now you have the elder scrolls and everything under your umbrella so if you get rid of obsidian give them to sony you take naughty dog who are experts at making that third person cinematic narrative type of game right which microsoft is mostly missing right now great so wow that's actually that would be a power move i like that answer (laughs) I like. To, I just like to have my balance set up, you know. So, PlayStation is going to need some Western RPGs when Microsoft's done buying them all. That's true. <laughs> the scales of justice are at balance. Then had a four dollar and eight cent donation from Spike Spiegel, who wrote, "Hey Nate and MVG, love the show and content you both produce. My question is about EA buying Codemasters." What do you think about EA giving the Burnout franchise to Codemasters and letting them run wild with it? P.S. EA need to remaster Burnout 3 Takedown. Uh, Yes, they do. I agree with that. They absolutely need to remaster (laughs) Takedown, which I think is the best Burnout game. So, yep, you you call it there. Um, The acquisition of Codemasters, I I think, generally speaking, they're just going to let Codemasters do their thing. I like to think that's going to happen. Um, they've obviously got, you know, Grid and um, uh, Dirt and, and those games. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a smart move. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but uh, EA kind of swiped it from underneath um, another company that, that had, had them locked in. 
Take so, two. Yeah, take two. That's right. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think in general it was a good acquisition. Um, you know, they could they could easily um, be involved with the next Need for Speed game whenever whenever that may may be. So, yeah, I mean, having having that that tech, you know, that racing game tech um, under their wing is is kind of what EA does. So, I I think it was a good good pickup for them. And yes, I would like to see um, Takedown Burnout Three Takedown. <laughs> remastered too these emergers and acquisitions guy it's all about the price to me i mean i think codemasters is a good company i think electronic arts uh can can help shepherd them get it out more i, I whether they're going to get their money back on that i have no idea i mean they spent a lot the thing about codemasters is they've been around literally since the the mid 80s um they have a lot of ip uh so they could potentially tap into that you know there's a, they own a lot of stuff so I think there's there's some value there, but yeah, I mean, whether they get their return on investment um, overall does remain to be seen. But it was definitely a good pickup for them. Yeah, it's a good company. Yeah, they're a really good company, and hopefully, EA utilizes them to their best, and they don't shut them down after five years because they're EA. That would be a shame if that happens. It would, just like when Activision shut down Bizarre. Yep. Am I remembering this correctly? Did uh, Codemasters eat up the old evolution or at least the personnel that were there? Yes. Okay. Uh, we then had a $15 donation from Nintendo, who wrote, Hi, Nate and MVG. Greetings from Switzerland. Been listening to your podcast for a while and love what you're doing. Keep up the wonderful work. Now to my question. What do you think? What do you think Nintendo will prepare for The Legend of Zelda 35th? anniversary well um we did discuss this on a previous episode um i'm not sure if it was the last episode or the one before it we did we did speculate that we feel like there is a collection of games coming this year um correct me if i'm wrong nate but i believe we said wind waker hd and twilight princess hd and maybe a third game in the mix i think it's going to be ocarina of time but it could be anything really so I, that's what I kind of expect to see with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I'm expecting the Zelda collection of Twilight Princess and Wind Waker HD, I think, in the fiscal year of the 35th anniversary. So it brings us to the end of next March. I think we will also see Skyward Sword HD get a standalone release. And my feel is that we get Ocarina and Majora's Mask added to Nintendo Switch Online as the first N64 games to join the service. He then had a $10 donation from Dan, who writes, I bought Mario Rabbids in 2017 and quickly put it down as I didn't care for strategy RPGs. A few weeks ago, I tried it again and became addicted to it. I can't put it down. Have you dismissed a game at first and later picked it up and became absorbed? Yes. Hmm. Yes, I have. Uh, I would probably say um, Mario Rabbids is a great game, by the way. I I got addicted to that game as soon as I started playing it. But I think in general, you have to be in the right mindset for it for certain styles of game. Like if you're not in the mood to play a strategy game, then you're not going to enjoy it. But if you do have the time to sit down and start really appreciating, you know, the, the finer details of something, you will uh, for me, in general, I mean, I think it goes back a little older, but you know, something like Borderlands for me was a game that when I first started playing it, I didn't really see what the big deal was. I just felt like it was a 
cell shaded shooting game that you know i didn't <laughs> think was particularly interesting but i have since played number one and two um and you know i, I do really appreciate those games a lot how about you richard any game you put down didn't like picked it up later it's a great question i you know i think i've had those experiences but they tend to be more recent in the live services genre so like we were talking about sea of thieves that bounced off me pretty good and i, I play it now regularly with both my daughter and my brother and we love it, but it's changed so much. It's not it's not like I changed my mind on it as much as they actually, you know, filled out what the game is. Um, so I tend to agree that I, I consider myself to like most games that are that are good, like that I'll, I can like anything from sports games to strategy games and everything else. But there is a notion of sometimes you feel like shooting folks, sometimes you feel like strategizing, sometimes you feel like a JRPG. I, and if you're not in that right mindset, you try to force it because it's the thing that came out that week or something like that. You can have a bad time and then come back to it when you're in a better space. Definitely. I think my pick and it might upset some people. It's going to be the Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. Yeah. OK, that's a good pick. And it's, it's an odd flavor. Yeah. 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 When I played that game as a kid, as excited as I was for it, the time mechanic didn't really click with me. And I was like, this game is stupid. I hate this game. And it took years for me to pick that game up again and say, okay, now I understand what this game was going for, and I ended up loving it. But it was a long time for that game to really draw me in and get its claws in me because that first impression was, this game sucks. Well, yeah, yeah it's that, you know, you feel that constraint by the time, right? So you feel like you just have to yeah. keep keep pushing forward and you're not really enjoying the game or you don't think you're enjoying the game. But yeah, once you yep. kind of, you know, take a step back and, and play through the game, it is actually a really, really good game. Yeah, it's great once you really learn the mechanics. And when I was playing it as a kid, I always felt like I wasn't getting anything done because it was like, oh, no, I got to race against this three day clock and I'm trying to do all these little missions and get all these items and stuff. And it was like, oh, now I got to go back in time and reset everything. And it was just like, no, nah, I'm not having fun with this. But, you know, I was... I was a kid, so it was probably it was too deep for me at the time. <laughs> yeah, it's an oddball. It's a good one though. Yeah, it's I just thought of it as we were, as soon as I saw the question, I was like, man, what game? Majora's Mask just popped into my head. We then had a hundred dollar donation from Calvin Atkinson, whom this episode is dedicated to. And they write, Hey Nate and MVG, I know it's unlikely, but what if Nintendo is looking at the cult following that eternal darkness got? and is looking for a way to get it out of legal limbo and will <laughs> next level games to make a remake for the switch with new sanity effects. I would love, I would love that. Yeah. Eternal darkness <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's, it doesn't seem likely, game. does it? What, what's the legal limbo who owns it right now? Nintendo owns it and they keep renewing the trademark, but they don't do anything with it. I mean, okay. You know, Next Level Games is now a Nintendo first-party studio, so, I mean, they could they could potentially, you know, toss it to them and say, have at it. Um, but, yeah, it's just very difficult for me to believe or think or imagine that Eternal Darkness has any relevancy <laughs> in 2021, as much as it pains me to say that, because I'd love that game a lot. Well, I yeah. mean, I think... So relevance is interesting, right? Because like I play a lot of board games and certainly Cthulhu-esque stuff, Lovecraftian stuff is very popular 
on the board game side. So I could certainly see if you wanted to, if you were so inclined and you're sitting there in Nintendo and you actually have that IP. And I don't know exactly what all the statuses are uh, there, but you could absolutely go to the Fantasy Flight to the World and get an Arkham Horror Presents Eternal Darkness put on it and, and start to license out something that maybe would get people in the door. I, I'm a bad test case for something like that because I love Eternal Darkness. I love all that stuff. I would 100% buy that day one. Uh, speaking of the market, you know, is that going to hit? Is that going to get you the the Call of Duty audience or or the Madden audience or anything else? No, probably not. But I, I like I like more novelty in my games. Yeah, that's what made the Eternal Darkness such a original and novel idea was just how unique the setting was, the story, and those sanity effects at the time. It <laughs> made your game was broken when all of a sudden the screen would just turn off or it would go to static or say your memory card data was corrupt. And you'd be like, what? Well, there you go. There you get your lawsuits. Yeah, there. what would they do for the remake? <laughs> you know, would they just they start drifting new Joy-Cons? Yeah, Joy-Con drift. <laughs> I'm not even touching my controller. Like, Nintendo screwed me again. <laughs> and then Nintendo gets slapped with lawsuits and like, it's just a game. You caused me distress. I'm suing you for the sanity effects. Like, we can't win. Yeah, you, could, you could do some fun stuff. Especially if you had it connected on the dock. You could do some weird stuff with the TV and then swap it out to the Switch. Now I'm going to build an, electro- an eternal darkness in my mind. It's a good question. Yeah. That's actually, yeah, if you had it docked, they could actually, like, disable the docking unit, have it yeah, activate the message. It's calling you, like, like, what is going on? It also goes back to the home screen. You got Switch, Joy-Con, Drift, connectivity issues, and they're like, oh, my God, my whole system's broken. You just have to get really creative. You can't repeat any of those GameCube sanity effects. You have to oh, get... That's fun stuff. That was a great game. Yeah. It was a great game. <laughs> Ben had a $13.63 donation from Craig, who writes, congrats on the 10,000, get some Sambucas. I do enjoy a nice Sambuca. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the only person who would say that. And then we had a $5 donation from Skittittles, who writes, hi again. Do either of you get the feeling, if the medium reviews well and performs well on Game Pass, that Microsoft may snatch up blooper team it feels like having an in-house horror studio outside Bethesda may be a good look for Microsoft. Heart emoji. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna say something about this that may may be a little controversial. I don't believe that indie studios in general are looking to get bought. There's a lot of chatter about you know these big companies buying out studios right now. I think a lot of indie studios don't want to be bought out. Like they're, they're, they're more than comfortable as, as they are working and operating. I think once you do get bought out by a big studio or a big platform holder, everything changes. And I think a lot of the times they don't necessarily want to go through that. You know, they'll lose personnel. Um, you know, it just it, stuff happens. Right. Um, and, and Richard, you could probably, you know, talk about, mergers and acquisitions for the next hour or so but i mean i think in <laughs> I general in general it's it's something that even though it sounds really attractive on paper i don't necessarily believe that a lot of these studios want to get bought like i think blue point's another one that that we, we've heard a lot of stories about being bought out by sony or potentially being bought out by sony but 
I think they're more than comfortable as they are. They're making money, clearly, and I don't necessarily think things need to change. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with the sentiment. I would say that it depends, um, like so many things in, in the world. When we talk about buying out a studio, you're not really talking about talking with all 100 developers or whoever might be at the studio. You're talking about whoever owns it, uh, which in an indie studio setting, depending on how it grew up, is probably going to be a fairly small number of people, if not one person in certain circumstances. Um, and so... It very much depends on the relationship you have with the studio, what the individual or individuals in question are looking to do with the lives, what stage of life they are in. Um, but they weren't necessarily built in the same way that I, you know, I come from mergers and acquisitions background, but also venture capital background, where some startups are built to get bought. Yes, right. Absolutely. We're not going to have the runway to take this pharmaceutical all the way to commercialization because it's going to be a fortune. So we're doing the trials in order to show a neon sign to one of these big companies and says, buy us out. This is our plan. And then we'll move to the next one and we'll do the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. Video game companies aren't necessarily operating in the same way. Some probably are somewhere, uh, especially really small operations that are saying, uh, we want to show off and you should hire us at bare minimum. And if that means buying our company for a little bit of money, then yeah, absolutely. But then you have, you know, like let's take Insomniac. Ted Price was notoriously independent forever. Um, until he finally got to a place in his career uh, and Sony got probably enough satchels of money up to his front door where he said, yeah, okay, uh, I'll sell Insomniac to, to Sony. But until then, if you've got something that's working, if you're making money, if you're putting food on the table, uh, yeah, it, everybody understands that it's a change to sell out to a big multinational corporation. Maybe you want it, maybe you don't, but there is friction there. And that friction is generally greased by a whole lot of money, but depending on who you're talking to and what money they already have, that can change the conversation in and of itself. Yeah, like what we saw at Next Level Games, it was that the shareholders were looking to sell and that's why Nintendo came in. It wasn't all the employees at that studio who were looking to be acquired, it were the higher ups were the just founders. at that point of yeah. saying, you know what, I'm done with this, I wanna move on who wants to take over the company. Nintendo came in with that money. And a lot of these indie studios, Blooper is still a relatively young studio. Have they so, made anything before that? I, I only know them from the medium. Yes, they made uh, Layers of Fear. They did Blair okay. Witch. Okay. Uh, I believe they have a couple of other projects, but they're still like, a, they're a young studio. And for an indie studio like this, usually it's in their interest to make contracts with the console manufacturers for you know an exclusive release because that way you get your funding you get some money you get good marketing deals blooper team wouldn't be a bad buy for microsoft per se but i think because they're still such a young company that they have a lot to prove and microsoft could gobble them up for next to nothing in terms of microsoft financials <laughs> that goes for any company on earth no. yeah i mean even <laughs> Zenimax purchase for Microsoft was how much is that? Oh, seven and a half billion. billion. What's seven billion between friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, a lot of these companies they like their independence. A lot of the employees work for bigger studios, and they went independent intentionally because they did not like how yeah businesses were run. They wanted to just function on their own. They get these contracts, and they thrive for that reason. They have creative freedom, so. I don't believe Blooper would get bought by Microsoft, but I could see Microsoft approach them with maybe some exclusive deals. We've seen Microsoft do this with companies like, um, I have their name, 
it's not in my mind right now. They did Life is Strange and Tell Me Why. Oh, don't nod. Yeah. Yes, don't nod. And Microsoft made that deal with them for Tell Me Why. And that game has performed exceptionally well. So I could see Microsoft go back to them and say, let's do another project together. Yeah. And for an indie studio, that is a big win because you're getting that financial support. You're getting the freedom to create new IP or new entries to your franchises. And that's the business model a lot of these indie companies want to pursue. A company like Bluepoint, they don't have any of their own assets. They haven't created their own original IP. So if I'm Sony and I can get you for a fair price and I just bring you under my umbrella and you continue to do the projects that I'm assigning you just as you're doing now, it's a smart move for them moving into the future. You know you have capital coming in. You know you're going to have work. And you don't have to worry about shopping out ideas saying, hey, Nintendo, you want us to remaster Eternal Darkness for you? It's Sony owns us. They're just going to drop projects on our desk. And we're happy doing this work. But, you know, they all weigh those pros and cons of, mm-hmm. is this the direction we want to move in? It's different in every case. And it's people at the end of the table. I mean, that's the yes. thing that I, I try to remind folks of. Uh, on my channel is it's 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 individuals making these choices and you think of them all as giant corporations even on the microsoft side it's people making phone calls and and trying to figure out what your number is and whether it's anything that would even interest you um and so it's it's you know i'm a a mergers and acquisitions lawyer so i enjoy the process uh but it is a process and it's it's a people oriented one yes i think yeah you bring up a good point there when people view these companies and talk about these companies it's always you view them as these giant corporations and you forget that there are, it's thousands of people. Yeah. It's thousands of thousands of people, even Nintendo who we've gone after for this episode with the Joy-Con drift. It's people. There was an engineer who created the Joy-Con design. They analyzed how it should function. They looked at supplier and parts and everything when they put it together and they made the product that they thought was well-designed in the constraints that they were assigned. It's not simply a company saying, let's screw over the little guy and make billions off this. It was, it's an ongoing effort. And there's so many people at these companies and it impacts every single one of them. So it's tough when we talk about, even like CD Projekt Red, we can go after their management and their poor handling of Cyberpunk 2077. And we generalize when we just say CD Projekt Red has to do better because we don't know the names of every individual at the company who made the poor decisions. I guess we could phrase it as management. I'm starting to memorize their board members. If I have to do another five videos, I think I'll know them all. (laughs) You must say Adam's name quite often. That's like like when you go to the same Starbucks and they remember your name. Yep. That's when you know you've got to find another one. Yeah. You know, no, if you're a video game company, you don't want, you don't want virtual legality to have memorized your board of directors as bad. (laughs) Hopefully that topic never comes back up again. But that game's not going away anytime soon, it feels. (laughs) And that was the final Streamlabs question for this week. Again, this episode was dedicated to Calvin Atkinson, who donated $100. If you'd like to support the channel, we have a Streamlabs link in the description below on YouTube. You can donate any amount, ask a question. We will answer it at the end of the episode. Donate $100 or more, and we will dedicate the episode to you. Today's episode, once again, is dedicated to Calvin Atkinson. And I'd like to thank our special guest this week, Richard Hogue, for joining us. Absolutely. Hope you had fun with us. Yeah. You've got a fun crew. Yeah, we, tr- we try. <laughs> and you can find a link to 
Hoag's Law in the description below. Be sure to give his channel a look. And I'd like to thank MVG for joining me as always. Hey, thanks for having me on, Nate. And uh, Richard, thanks for coming on. Um, Nate and I are, you know, armchair lawyers at best. So um, getting <laughs> getting your take on, on this stuff was really, really enlightening. So we appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. And you can find a link to MVG's channel in the description below as well. And be sure to give the video a like if you enjoyed the content. If you didn't, give the video a dislike. Let us know your thoughts on Nintendo Switch and the Joy-Con Drift situation in the comments section below. And until next time, continue to embrace the hate.